if they did all the specific stuff early at 12 and they never learned how to stand up tall and sprint, they never learned how to backpedal, they never learned how to do different patterns, they don't have the variance, the variability to be able to adapt to other movements when they need it. And that's the cool thing, Joel, is we know great plays are made when players can make a unique play that they don't do traditionally. You know, like a pop fly, the wind blows the ball. We hear this all the time. The guy, the softball player or baseball player that can manipulate their body quick and recover makes the game-winning play. So, that was speed and sport movement expert Lee Taft speaking on the importance of well-rounded speed development for athletes in order for them to hit their highest potential in the game. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, gym aware, K-Box, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments, allowing me to look at the 10 meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none. Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 97 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. Today on the show, we have back for a second appearance, speed and athletic movement expert, Lee Taft. Lee has three decades of experience as a coach, educator, sports performance coach, movement coach. He has just an unbelievably thorough understanding of what it takes for an athlete to move fast in their environment, on the field, to make the play. And ultimately, for what we're shooting for with all the athletes we work with, to win the game. Uh, and uh, I think it's it's always, um, it's, it's one thing to make an athlete fast um, in a 40-yard dash or 100-meter sprint. Uh, and but the complexity of sport is a whole nother ball game, so to speak. I guess figuratively, literally, <laughs> no pun intended. Um, one thing I like as a strength coach, sports performance coach, whatever you want to call it, I, I love the complexity of movement, and it's something that as I go uh, each year that I grow as a coach, and the more I develop, the more I watch athletes, the more I just really truly appreciate these deep dives that Lee goes into talking about uh, the linking movements, the transition movements. What is it that makes an athlete able to react to a sports stimuli, make the play, uh, and, and just going much further than, okay, you're going to set up in this stance here, you're going to run straight ahead. Uh, the complexity of movement is just such a cool thing uh, to learn, <clears throat> and Lee is one of the best guys to learn from in terms of uh, getting athletes faster and making the play. So uh, we have Lee back. Uh, last time we talked pretty heavily on like when to coach, on when to actually coach an athlete and when to let it be. Athletes who are great movers innately. Uh, we also talked, uh, went into a little bit of Lee's philosophy on like the linking movements, the transition movements that are so critical in speed. Uh, this time having him back, I really wanted to get into some details between like a court sport athlete and a field sport athlete? What are some movement paradigms uh, that, that each athlete might operate just a little bit differently under, especially in things like heel recovery, shuffling versus uh, the track and field mentality, uh, which obviously is both are good, uh, where your athlete is picking up their heels higher to run. Where are you going to see what in which sport environment and how do we coach it? That to me is really important just to, with me, my background being track and field, but I also work with court sports like tennis. And, and I'll tell you, the two athletes move a lot differently and you wouldn't want to coach one sport like the other, although it is good at times to, for each sport to capture the essence of the other. And so knowing when and where and how to build that total athlete 
uh, really great stuff. So whether you're a track coach or a, a strength coach only dealing with team sports or court sports, I think there's something to appreciate for everybody here. Uh, so not only do we do that, but we're going to talk into uh, the finer points of uh, multilateral long-term development. I know that's a big thing now, and so, as it should be. Uh, you know, when should athletes specialize? When when can they specialize? How do we you know watch for that growth spurt in there, and, and how does that change the training paradigm? So Lee is really, really good on that stuff, and he has some great advice um, in steering athletes towards their, their highest ability and best enjoyment in sport in that regards. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, reactive ability. So I know we've, we've had some guests on here like Michael Zuifel, Jeff Moyer. We've had the, the Roundtable podcast and talking about reactive agility. So we're going to get Lee's take. We're going to talk about his favorite games in that context. Uh, actually, I took those like literally like, right after I did this podcast with him. I used some of those right away in uh, my next tennis uh, development session and it's just really cool stuff it's always good to uh, a just get fresh things in the system but also things that are have come out of um, someone's process who has three decades of development and has gotten a lot of athletes fast so uh, great things are in this episode that you can go and plug in right away Uh, we're also going to talk about basically lee's how he does a session in terms of the amount of open reactive work versus the amount of closed work where it's more developmental and working on specific movements, which if you follow this podcast for some time, you know that's an important area. I think how Lee does it is really cool, and it fits with a lot of things I've heard from other experts in the field. So definitely stay tuned all the way to the end when he gets into that. It's great stuff. And uh, this podcast, just overall, you work with athletes, you got to listen to this one. Uh, So much insight from a man who is definitely a master of team sport and all-around speed development. So let's get on to episode 97 with Lee Taft. Lee, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being on again. Hey, Joel. Thanks so much. Always look forward to it. Hope you're well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, I've had a lot of things since last time that I've thought about just in terms of how athletes move, uh, just kind of new ideas on my own end. And things I want to talk to you about either in a new light or things we missed last time. And so the first thing I wanted to ask you is uh, just a general movement question and the difference um, between the way the athletes move in a court sport, so basketball, or uh, versus a, a field sport, so soccer or lacrosse. Uh, what are some big uh, paradigms or, or differences between those types of athletes in movement? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great question because... I think if we look at the general mechanics of an athlete, there's not a ton of difference. Where the difference comes in is the intent and the the duration of a gait cycle. So, for example, a volleyball player, relative to other sports, they don't cover a ton of distance. They don't have to. They're, they're, the demand for their sport doesn't require them to do that. So you you won't see them get up into a tall sprint. You won't see them do a ton of hard, hard, aggressive change of direction like a basketball player might. And then if you bring it out to, like uh, say, the pitch on soccer, you're going to see a much different type of uh, – movement because they might do a like a like a half effort shuffle just staying oriented all of a sudden the ball maybe gets chipped forward and now all of a sudden they're in a sprint you know really quick so the combinations of movement from a court sport to a field sport are different in respects that um you just have to cover more distance you got to be prepared to cover more distance you have to go from a shuffle or a lateral run step to a full out sprint in a field sport but in a in a court sport, you know, basketball, you might do that a little bit. Um, you know, like I said, you know, soccer, excuse me, uh, volleyball, you're not going to do that as much. But the overall mechanics still are the same. We're still going to see a push. We're still going to see an opening of the hips if we're doing a, a, like a directional step or something like that. Uh, but it's just kind of the intent of the movement that makes it much different. No, yeah, sure, sure thing. And the athletes who I feel like I kind of see this, but I'm not sure if I can put my finger on it. Just not having worked with, I would say, enough of the the different types within the strength and conditioning setting. But uh, do you just see like ways that those athletes just generally move differently? Uh, if you just ask them to do just a regular sprint, or say a volleyball player versus a uh, soccer player are they could you just tell right off the bat by watching someone run and move like this is probably your sport yeah you know overall definitely especially if you if you were to say to a group of athletes 
and you said, I want you to, on my go, drop down into an athletic stance, a volleyball player is going to stick out because they're, they're probably going to put their arms out in front to have a platform. They're going to be a little bit rounded at the shoulder. They'll be a little bit lower, much wider. A basketball player might sit up a little bit with their chest, you know, defending. A tennis player won't bend as much. They might be a little high because they got to see over the net. Um, yeah, so it is. It's kind of cool. But anytime, matter of fact, I just I got a new athlete last night who is a volleyball player, and their stance is very unique. You know, but if I asked a football player or a soccer athlete to kind of bend their knees, get down, you know, they'll bend their knees, they'll get down in pretty much a traditional, uh, you know, athletic stance. So, yeah, it is kind of cool to see. And even in the movements, you'll know, you'll know the difference because if, a, if an athlete is a creature of habit based on their sport and they only play that one sport, you'll see similarities on how they push and how they recover and and how high they lift their knees when they sprint. Yeah, so it's pretty cool to watch. Yeah, so uh, something I, I wanted to ask you then is is training implications. So you get, uh, and I'm sure maybe the age depends, like a 12-year-old volleyball player versus uh, uh, maybe a college level, like a 21-year-old volleyball player. Uh, and, and you're doing their speed training. Like they're, they're coming to you and they're, they're like, I, I want to get faster. I want to do speed training. Uh, do, you, do you train them very specifically in that, uh, is like the primary focus train them specifically in those positions. What's the value in like a, a common person, like, you know, a common might be training a three point start or, or different types of more common, uh, sprint starts. Uh, what's the, the spectrum of being specific to that sport versus teaching other types of speed? Yeah, that's, that's the question right there. And I think that's where we miss it. So you had originally asked about a younger, let's say a 12-year-old volleyball player. I want to make sure that athlete has a tremendous toolbox of movement. So they're going to get a lot more variety. It's really important because that variety builds their ability to make the specificity greater later. If they did all the specific stuff early at 12 and they never learned how to stand up tall and sprint, they never learned how to backpedal, they never learned how to do different patterns. They don't have the variance, the variability to be able to adapt to other movements when they need it. And that's the cool thing, Joel, is we know great plays are made when players can make a unique play that they don't do traditionally. You know, like a pop fly, the wind blows the ball. We hear this all the time. The guy, the softball player or baseball player that can manipulate their body quick and recover makes game-winning play so having that variability now when I get to the older athlete the college level and I have a college volleyball player I'm working with right now division one player what we'll do with her is when she is preseason just ready to go we're going to be a little bit more specific we want to make sure she's uh, uh, very uh, fundamentally sound in her specific movement patterns be very explosive get balanced very quickly she happens to be a setter so she has a great foot position uh has to have a vertical stance a little bit more quad dominant type movement um but when i get her like she'll be coming home college is finishing she'll be coming home for the summer now we'll go back to much more general stuff. We'll just give her a good foundation of a vertical jump. We'll work on a broad jump. We'll work on a lateral shuffle. We'll sprint. We'll do change of direction and all those kind of things, you know, for probably several weeks, six weeks. And then we'll start to teeter back into some specific things. And then we'll go back. And then as she gets closer to going back in the fall, will hit the specificity again so that she feels really good and comfortable. Yeah, no, that's that's a great way of putting it, Lee. I, I was gonna uh, follow that up as well. I some people were um, there's you know things come in waves on, on social media, and one of the things lately, and I'm actually gonna try to run a podcast on this in the future, uh, and hopefully the very near future, uh, is just the idea of early specialization, and you know you do have pros who made it without doing multiple sports, but there's good research that. Um, not specializing will decrease your chance of injury and then we look at the nfl comp or the nfl draftees and they're mostly multi-sport people but uh in, in your thoughts and your experience when is a good time to to start specializing based off of what you had just mentioned in terms of you want the well-rounded abilities uh like in the perfect world like let's say volleyball or basketball what age uh would that athlete would be an okay time for that athlete to start doing their their one thing 
Yeah. Um, the, 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 there's multiple answers to that because if let, – let's say we're working with a track athlete, very uh, – let's, let's say a sprinter, extremely specific, right? That they, they get in the blocks and they run straight and that's it. That's their sport. That's what they do. Even though that's their sport, they still need to be able to develop the ability to have great kinesthetic feel of their body. So when they're younger, we're still going to do some lateral stuff. We're still going to make sure, even if it's in the warm-up, we're going to make sure they move laterally. We're developing frontal plane awareness, frontal plane stability, and mobility of joints, which is really critical, and that will help them later. Plus, with a sprinter, I would, I would, if they're the type of sprinter that you know can make it to the next level, Division One and potentially beyond that, okay? Uh, because if they're not going to go to college, well, then it ends in high school, right? That's it. But if I know they have the potential to go later, I don't get extremely specific on breaking down the technical nuances of block work or accelerating until they're much older. And I'm talking like 17, you know, their senior year. Uh, then we'll start to drive a little bit. And if I know I'm going to have them, the tricky part is if I don't think I'm, I'll get them again, then I'll try to help them the best I can. And I might move that down to maybe 15, 16. But if you do too much too soon, especially with a boy who has the potential to grow again, what they're going to do is they're going to develop a movement pattern and that's going to get ingrained, but then when they have a growth spurt and that movement pattern needs to change to adjust to a longer limb, maybe more strength, maybe this, it's harder for them to get out of it because you've been so specific with them from a young age. They can't get out of that very easily. So that's why general training is really important. Now, when we move to a sport like basketball, basketball is a sport you can play pretty old, you know, basically. I mean, you can go – you know, look at look at the NBA guys or the weekend warriors. They're playing into their late 30s, 40s, 50s, and even older. So you can play. So I'll I won't go extremely specific only. Now I'll do specific movements, but not not you know only uh, uh, specific movements for basketball. Not until they're again they're getting ready for college, and I really need to get them ready. Or if I have a college getting ready for pro, the, the same thing there. Now I've worked with gymnasts. Now their career is pretty short. Now some of them will, some of them will get, you know, college, but that that's usually it. So there you might have to hit them a little bit earlier. I've worked with ice skaters, same thing. Sometimes their careers are they hit it hard early and then they're done. Um, so I'm going to give you a range. I think if we can wait until close to 15. Most kids, girls, sometimes 14 because they'll mature a little bit sooner. And then up, we can start to dabble into more hardcore specific stuff, but still need the general aspect of it. And then it just adjusts according to age because I'm constantly adjusting my athletes based on their sport, where they're at, and they're, they're like, have they reached puberty yet? Because I don't like to do anything too specific there. But you know what, Joel? Here's the tough part. We know if you do specific, uh, a specific training with an athlete, they're young, they will get better quicker, but that's not always a good thing because sometimes their best years are when they're really young, but when they need it to be able to get a college scholarship or go beyond, they've already spent their years in the younger time and they're done. They can't get any better because you were so specific and their toolbox is very little but it's really good, it's really clean, but they don't have the variability to grow any further or that big foundation. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, there's there's so much awesome stuff of what you just said there, there Lee. I'm gonna try to unpack that here a little bit. I, I'll start with um, what you had mentioned, like being good early doesn't mean you'll be good later on. I remember in my, I was uh, athletic training sports medicine for two years in my undergrad degree and I I can hardly believe I actually was I was sports medicine at a time. I mean, I, I think it was just kind of my entry and just getting used to things. But I remember one of my professors uh, had said he's he worked with baseball a lot. He was like, "Yeah, the kids that are best at 11 or 12 at baseball are almost never the ones who are the best at 18 or 19." And I was yep. like, "Huh? Like that's that's interesting." Like I, at the time, I was I had a hard time I think understanding why that might be. But uh, based off what you just said, I, I it makes perfect sense and the. 
the growth spurt thing. I feel like not enough people talk about that. I, it's Stefan Jones, who's been on this podcast before and contributed a lot for Just Fly Sports. I mentioned the like timing training with the rate of peak height, I think the term was. Yes. Uh, and that's, it's, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That, that's, uh, there was a lot of research in the past with that peak uh, height, because if you're in a growth spurt, there's certain things you don't want to do a lot of, like a lot of hardcore power, change of direction, just where the, you know, the joints are a little bit more supple at that time in the tissue. And there's just a lot of stuff that can hurt the athlete. So you just got to be able to adjust. That's tough to do. And especially in America, when the athlete leaves your training session, goes right to an AAU practice, gets up in the morning and has stuff and then has a skill coach. It's hard, you know, but, uh, but Hey, you know, we got to just kind of keep informing people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting too, like the more I've done this podcast and talked to all these experts such as yourself, the more I realize, you know, the answer isn't totally black and white. Like, I mean, if someone stops growing early and, and really loves a sport, you know, like maybe it's okay. And, and, but I think there's some people who are very like ham fisted either way. And I think the answer is somewhere in the middle. Well, I mean, obviously I think leaning a little bit more towards multi-sport, but, but somewhere in the middle, it's not completely black and white for absolutely everybody yes yeah definitely uh, yeah. what what you're just saying too it's funny i was thinking about my my daughter is like 21 months old and she was what you're saying with the peat the growth spurt she she loves jumping and climbing and she was jumping off of the couch the other day like like the couch that's about 20 inches high and landing <laughs> it and and she is loving it but i was like should i be letting you do this right now like is this gonna mess you up i don't know like <laughs> She's either going to mess her up or she's going to set a world record in something. Yeah, yeah. It's going to make her break her. It's right now at 21 months. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that's great stuff. I also, uh, going back to it, like we said about the frontal plane for track athletes, I know I've seen this uh, in working with swimmers myself the last five years. Like, It seems like, uh, and I've, I've heard this, but like your, your ability in the frontal and transverse planes kind of dictates your technique in the sagittal plane, especially if you're a runner or a swimmer. And, um, and if, yeah, if you didn't do multi-sport, you've been swimming since age four or whatever, or just running distance since age eight, you probably, it'll have a knock on your, uh, your triplanar and then your, your technical ability. Yeah. Sometimes the little tiny movements or the little tiny, uh, uh, support systems mean the most, even though they don't show up the most. So we always talk about the lumbar spine and how little degrees of, actual functional movement it has but think how important that is if you didn't have it so if that was frozen okay so if l5 down s1 if all that was frozen and you couldn't move it think how restricted you become and how much you have to rely on something else so the same thing with you had mentioned again the track athlete the ability to stabilize the frontal and the transverse with allowing those to occur because you need them because those are loading parameters. If you didn't have them and you couldn't stabilize those, just think how it minimizes your ability to really move in the sagittal, which is, you know, that's the major plane you're moving in. But look at how much rotation there has to be to create energy in a sprinter. And, and a sprinter is the volleyball player going after a tipped ball, you know, out of bounds, that sprint is just as important as that hundred meter sprinter to the success of their sport. So yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. Pretty cool to see. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. Okay. So next question, uh, probably in the same world too, a little bit. Uh, but we had talked about this a little bit off air before we got started. Uh, but your take on uh, heel recovery in running. And, and I guess this could be a different question based on exactly what type of athlete, as you mentioned, yeah. but uh, low heel recovery versus high. So those athletes who sprint with real, their, their feet don't really get that far up over their knees and they're running sprinting in almost a more of a shuffly way versus yep. getting, being able to get those feet up high. Um, when, what's your take on that? And if that, if, and when that needs to be corrected in athletes. Right. Yep. Uh, really important because if we develop models. So every movement that my athletes will do, whether it's a strength movement or a sprint, shuffle, cross or whatever, or deceleration, I have models. So I, I know what it should look like based on my model. And the amount of variability that I allow that athlete to have is based on sport 
advanced level in that sport because I'll let a younger kid get away with a little bit more because I know they don't have maybe strength yet or motor proper motor programming yet Um, or my college like athletes I won't let them get away with as much because they can't they can't afford it so when an athlete is accelerating they're just starting you had mentioned earlier like a tennis player taking off uh, you know maybe after a drop shot when we were talking earlier well in the initial couple steps the heel recovery is going to be lower because the body lean, the pitch of the body is forward. They're leaning and they're pushing longer and they're pulling the leg through much lower. But it's based on the lean of the body. So if the body's close to, you know, a 40 degree lean, 45 degree lean or whatever it may be, it, you know, the leg recovery is going to reflect that. Now, once the athlete gets up tall and starts running, the importance of the heel recovery is the a shorter limb is a faster limb so if the heel is higher that means my calf is up closer to the hamstring of that leg so when i pull my knee forward to get to a high knee position or a thigh block we call it like the thighs parallel to the ground like a sprinter just picture carl lewis or usain bolt or marion jones any of the top sprinters when that thigh gets parallel with the ground that that heel getting pulled through has to be pretty high. It's got to come up under the butt, pull through over the other knee and through. Now you take a softball player that's, you know, uh, an infielder is running after a chopped ball, a, you know, a ball that's hit maybe 15 feet in front of them. You're not going to see as big of a heel recovery, even if they get up to max velocity in that situation, they probably won't. But if they did, just because that's not something they're trained in all the time. They haven't had the ability to get that pelvis neutral, which allows you to get a high knee. If the high knee is there, the foot can recover low or higher. Um, so the heel recovery is based on um, the need of that sport, whether they're pushing like acceleration or they're stepping over like sprinting. How do we recover it and, or excuse me, improve it and why? If the re- ways we can uh, help that is through different forms of like skipping, uh, a skips. Uh, we do things called snap skips, which is very similar to an A. It's just that the legs snap and switch exactly at the same time versus an A. We have both legs on the ground at the same time. Um, those things help you get the heel up higher and help you recover over. We do things called anklings, where you run over your ankle, you run over your calf, or you run over the other knee. That's how we can teach an athlete to be able to do that. And it's all based on, uh, like, do I need my volleyball player to be a really effective volleyball player to be able to do that? Yeah, when they're 12, 9, 10, 11, 12, yeah, I would like them to be able to do that. If they're college level and they're not perfect at that, I'm okay with that as long as they can play their sport at a high level. So so in a kind of a roundabout answer, it covered kind of a lot of different areas. That's really what we're looking at with heel recovery. Yeah, um, some good points. I One of the things I, I, you actually covered what I was just going to ask you, like with that softball player, with that volleyball player, yeah, do you do you try to train that? And so yeah, exactly. If they're younger, yes. And then if they're a little bit older, it's it's probably their movement paradigm. And you know, a, a 22 year old volleyball player, it's probably not going to help them that much to get, take them out to the track and have them run like a, a 200 meter sprint or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And you know, you may expose them to it and have them do it. It's not wrong, but it's like anything else. If you've got 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And if you're going to work with them one day a week or one day every two weeks on sprint mechanics, how much are you going to override the tens of thousands of reps where they don't do it that way? So, you know, you, you can do it, but if you're really trying to make change, you got to do it when they're young. You know, you got to get them when they're younger. So their, their tens of thousands of reps are more appropriate sprint mechanics. Yeah, yeah, they're they're constantly rehearsing what they're they're using in their game. I um, yeah, it's it's I like you mentioned that it's like um, if a, you know if someone's paying you to train their kid or if you're training college athletes who, if you're using extra time, it's maybe eating into their studies or they could be sleeping, and you're choosing it to spend on these movement mechanics that at the end of the day aren't going to make a big impact on them. I mean, yeah, it's probably not going to hurt them. Like it's not going to make them worse. It's just right. a waste of time. So yeah. 
Yeah, you got to find time. Sometimes that's why you use the warm-ups to get the little things in that because if you have them four or five, six times a week, if you're a college coach or strength coach, okay, well, you can get it in in the warm-up. You can get it every day. If you're like us, I'm a, you know, I, I might get athletes once a week sometimes. And it, sometimes it's my fault because I travel a lot. Mm. Sometimes it's their fault. So I have to go after things that are going to impact them health-wise movement wise and then specifically for their sport i just gotta you know have a paradigm of what's most important for that athlete i, I like i like what you said lee about the the heel recovery being uh influenced or, or impacted so heavily by the the forward lean of the torso that's something that i've really connected the dots on myself this last year at least in track sprinting i hadn't thought yeah. about it with any other sport yet until you mentioned it there something that i learned from Adarian Barr, and and we were we were really getting into um uh, Christian Coleman's uh, world record, uh, the 633, I believe it was, or 634. And, and then yep. that's the Chinese uh, sprinter, Su, uh, right next to him. They're both indicating, especially Christian, it's like low low feet, one, two, and then pick up. Then he picks up after the second. It's like all those guys, like toe drag, or if they toe drag and go. And it's interesting that you said the same thing with uh, a court sport, like tennis, it might be like kind of that same thing. The first two or three might have to be really low to get going to correspond with the lean, and then they'll pick up if they have to run. I just never – it's so cool to hear those from different sources. You know, like it's universal. Physics and biomechanics are universal despite the outcome. Yep. That's right, and that's it. If you If we look at inertia, if I'm going to change inertia – a body that's you know not moving and I get I have to push longer so I got to be in the ground longer very little or less air time than it would be if I'm max velocity well for that to happen my feet can't get really high yet it just because I'm I have to push too long but when I'm max velocity I'm very like touch and go pop but when I'm pushing, I push longer. It's the same thing with a shuffle, like a lateral shuffle. Same thing. The first couple push-offs are a little bit longer ground contact. Then it becomes more touch and go, pop the ground and get off it. So, yeah, it's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, I love it. It's The more I watch movement from different sports and see the, the common tie-ins, it's just – it's always such a cool thing. It's like a – I don't know. It's like, I think people think it's crazy that we do it for fun, right? But it is, it is so much fun to see those commonalities and how athletes do their thing. It is. It is. I, I spend a lot of time studying film. I just enjoy I've been watching a lot of like team handball, a lot of the real, real team handball, different movements. And I'll watch cricket and I'll watch different sports. And I'm like, the biomechanics are the same, but the intent is different. Mm -hmm. That's the that's the cool thing. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah. Based off what you just said with the intent, too, I'll, I'll take that into the next question and uh, some ways you build uh, reactive ability into athletes. So their ability to respond to stimuli in sport or, or general stimuli that would maybe correspond to sport. Uh, what uh, stimuli, what ways do you use to build a reactive component or ability into athletes? Yeah. Um, a couple parts to that question. Uh, first of all, when we're talking about just the reaction, so you and I are facing each other and all of a sudden, you know, you throw a ball at me. Okay. That kind of reaction. Or when the gun goes off, that kind of reaction, those are best developed through experience and exposure. The more I'm exposed to it, the more my brain identifies the initial action and it gives me that chance to respond or react and be quicker. So genetics do determine some of our makeup, okay, of our ability to react to something, how quick we can do it. But through experience and doing it more and being technically sound at the setup of an athletic stance and when I have to take off, that can improve the actual reaction time. Now, when we talk about extending the reaction time from seeing it, reacting, and then the movement, the actual movement that takes place, so maybe my first two steps to react to, you know, maybe a game of chase or something like that. Um, we, we, again, we make sure mechanically they're sound. So the reaction isn't wasted. So you might have a great reaction, like pop, you see it and you're ready to go. But then your form is like crap and you don't know how to push. You don't know how to do use your arms. So you kind of follow, you know, kind of fall apart. So 
some of the things that we'll do, and it's funny because last night I had, a, you know, five, six athletes over, you know, a few different hours. And one of the things I did with two of my groups is we did a reaction drill where I had a ball. Everybody does this. And I dropped the ball and they got to get to it before it bounces a second time. And the athlete's standing, you know, 10, 12, 13 feet from me. Now, all of them to a T, and, and most of these athletes are new, the ones that I had yesterday. They run with both hands out in front of them, trying to catch the ball off the bounce, almost like, you know, a baby falling out of a burning building. And they're trying to, and I kept saying, okay, the intent is, yeah, if you catch the ball, great, but the intent is to be quick, to accelerate fast, move your mass. Well, what helps us move our mass? So I talked to them about obviously pushing to the ground, but what helps the push? It's the arm drive. So if my arm drive is there, we get there. So I give them a strategy. They have to give me two hard arm drives, one, two, reach. Then they get there easy. Now, what started to happen, Joel, was when they were barely getting to the ball, now all of a sudden they're getting there and catching it easier because the arm drive helped them get there quicker. So the reaction of the ball drop, the ball dropping, sends the signal for them to take off. Now, to make it so you don't waste that great reaction, because you might see it, they might see it and go, but then to help it, now we got to be mechanically sound. Okay, it's just like the guy who gets the best jump out of the blocks, but they, you know, they run like a, you know, like a four eight forty, and everybody else is a four three. Doesn't matter if you had the quickest reaction if you can't, you know, you can't finish the job at the end. Um, so we'll do a lot of things like that, but I'm also very big on improving reaction with partners. So you and I are facing each other right now. I can't move or I can't react until you do. What happens over time, I learn and I start to predict your your kind of nuances, where you like to go, maybe 70% of the time you like to fake to the right, go to the left. If I do it enough times, my experience tells me and it makes my reaction time to your movement better because I've kind of predicted where you might go. So there's a lot to it, but... Um, we can improve it through exposure, experience, and then mechanically getting them sounder, and now the movement becomes better. The reaction, the reaction is there, but the movement after the reaction is what we really visually see. So yeah, that's kind of, kind of a deep area if you really go into it. Oh yeah, I think this whole like seminars on that stuff now. Sean Mishka had something up in Minnesota, and just like whole seminars dev devoted to perception and action and. That rabbit yes. hole, like you could go so far down. I'm just on like the very top right now, but I like oh, what you yeah. I like what you mentioned on, yeah. Like I mean, there's there's so many schools of thought, right? Like I, I guess you get the, like the Jay Schrader ideal of, you know, you don't need to coach. You know, athletes will run the best their capability. You don't need to coach them, but then it does happen, like you mentioned, like where you will have them react to something, and and then mechanics when there's multiple stuff going on, or they already have a weakness, things fall apart, and it needs to be coached and. Um, but as well, on the flip side too, there's uh, something interesting that happened to me is my, my tennis guys, we will run a 10 yard dash in the fall, um, just they get really competitive with it. And we were doing, um, like you said, reacting to a partner drill stuff um, this past week, where they would like shuffle along with a partner and then one partner would sprint and then they would try to race each other. And there was a couple guys who were terrible at that 10 yard dash, but as soon as they got to go laterally into their start, like, I don't know, they cleaned up everything and they were really fast. I was like, okay, yeah. maybe I was wasting my time before the 10. Um, but uh, no, I totally agree. I've seen that in baseball, running baseball speed camps where like you do the drop drill and man, some kids just can't, like, it's just awful. And it's like, okay, now we need to regress and couple, like the coupling of reaction to the appropriate mechanics. I think, like you said, it can be a really deep rabbit hole, but uh, I think that's that's where it's at, right? Rather than just yep. having athletes do A skips and B skips and run through a Cohen series and speed learn and call it agility training. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and you've talked about you know Jay uh, Schrader with his you know his concepts and stuff, and I've followed him for years and years, and he's brilliant. Does some really good mm -hmm. stuff, and I've heard other coaches say, "Well, we just need to get him strong in the right postures during strength, and that'll carry over their technique." But Having said that, we're sitting there saying, if we're creatures of our habits, and if we haven't developed habits and habitual patterns, like for deceleration, uh, body control, cutting, um, if I'm accelerating and they, they, they just haven't used their arms, they haven't practiced it, 
Now, yeah, they may push really well. They may have good strength. They may have good reactivity off the ground or elastic energy. But if they don't understand, because they haven't had enough exposure, to hip height. Hip height is really important based on my mechanics for change in direction. If I'm too high, it puts more demand in other parts of my body versus being too low or in the sweet spot. Well, the sweet spot is developed by habits and continually do it. All of a sudden, they just groove into that pattern quickly. But if I, if I just say, well, if I get them strong enough, and I, and I work on their mobility, and I work on their stability, they'll just naturally carry over. Well, yeah, they're going to move, but are they going to be efficient as they can be? I don't believe so. In my, you know, just 30 years of working with athletes on change of direction and speed, I, I've taken some really strong athletes that cannot move really mm-hmm. well. They're really stable, but they haven't had enough ha- uh, uh, positive habits yet. And I think that's why we have to identify that. What, what kind of ability do they bring to the table so that we know what type of skill to give them so it's uh yeah so there again there's a lot to that oh yeah yeah i'm sure we could talk about that for for hours really uh, like intent and athletes who are like you said an athlete who just gets a ton of exposure and they're reacting to their sport and they they have a a wide varied physical literacy they probably aren't going to need that much coaching compared to someone who hasn't had the exposure they haven't had the physical literacy uh, and then maybe where the, the former fits into more of that J-shirt, like they can do it, their body, the intense there, and they can do it versus right. other people who need a little more help along the way. So Yes, 100%. Yep. Uh, yeah, but uh, it's it's all good good stuff, Lee. Uh, kind of following up with that one. Uh, so in terms of proportions and progressions, so athletes come in the gym, they're going to work out. Uh, what are what are we looking at for proportions of of closed drills? So there's nothing you're reacting to in terms of speeds, agility, change of direction versus reactive component work. And I'm sure it changes based off the group where they're at. Uh, but what are some general guidelines for how much of each type of of movement paradigm you'd be looking at in a training session? Yeah. Um, so my my system is different than most in that. Once we've done the warm-up and we've done all the things to prepare the athletes so they're ready to go, the first thing I do and the primary thing I do is we're doing some kind of reactive training. I have a system called the reactive tier system for speed. Tier one is an exercise where the athlete knows where they're going to go. They just don't know when. So that's a track athlete, right? They're in the blocks, a base stealer. Usually, I mean, they could have to get back to the bag, but for the most part, they know where they're trying to go. Um, A tier two would be the athlete doesn't know which way they're going to go and they're not sure when. So it's you and I facing each other. I could take off and go to the right or I could go to the left. You got to match me. okay? but we only make one movement. Once we go to the right or left, we're done. A tier three is same as a tier two, but there's multiple movements. So it might be like a mirror drill. I could go right, left, right, left. I could back up. I could, and you got to match me. Okay. So having said that, my training sessions go like this. We warm up. We're prepared to go. We start with reactive drills. The reactive drills tell me what the solution needs to be next. Then I go into what we call correctives. So the correctives are all the drills that we all do. Okay, they're the, the, you know, the five-yard shuffle, the five-yard acceleration, maybe jump training, uh, resisted work, those things that we're trying to break down the mechanics. So let me give you an example. Uh, last night, I had a volleyball player and I had a track athlete in the same session. I only work with two athletes at a time. I, and my, I'm working out of my home facility now. It's not big enough. So my volleyball player and the track athlete, they did reactive stuff. Both of them were a little bit different in what they did, but I just kept watching them. They had to react to me, to my point, or to uh, other commands that I had. When I saw flaws, I immediately corrected it right then. So one of them, 
she had a hard time doing what we call a lateral run step, which is called a crossover to most people. And she was blocking her hip, her front side hip. So we took a medicine ball and I had her do a side throw. You know how you take it and you just turn and you open your front hip and throw? Well, that lends itself to the exact program, movement program that I would do for a lateral run step. So she did five of those on each side, came right back and did the crossover again, and it cleaned it up because the emphasis was on opening that front hip, doing a directional step, and then, and then you know finishing the lateral run step or crossover. So that's an example of how my training session goes. We react, we move real world stuff, and then we fix it when I don't like what I see. Now, if the next day I say, okay, part of the problem with her is we need more hip strength. So I might put a band on her and have her do you know, three sets of five lateral shuffles. She knows exactly where she's going. It's a closed drill. She's going from here to here, comes back. And we're just trying to build push off, hip strength, core strength. That's the purpose. So I'll do it like that sometimes. But usually it's it's predicated off what I've recognized with the reactive speed. So an, an example of that would be I coached a lot of sports. Let's say basketball. If my team isn't executing the offense right well then we'll break it down we'll the next practice we're going to break it down into its parts to clean it up a little bit and then go back to the full thing so i do the exact same thing with movement so my closed drills are are correctives for my reactive live training you're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster i love that it's like yeah, uh, I I think I heard uh, Ken Clark maybe say something about this. It's like the compete, rehearse, compete idea. Like, and it takes like a, a I think what a lot of people are always looking for like the magic solution to and, but it takes like a good coach's eye. Like like you have to like you said like you have to take the time and watching the video and understanding what's good movement to be a better practitioner yourself and be able to yes. to go in and and say what we have to rehearse rather than I, I think so many people just. Um, it's always like they're just looking for the answer rather than the answer is in looking in the video and many, many and just getting that eye yeah. in many uh, situations. Yeah. And, and that's why we want the model. If you have a model of movement, you identify quickly when they're outside the model. So if an athlete runs and their arms cross their body, well, that broke your model, right? Because the model of sprinting, the arms should come pretty straight. You know, there's going to be a little variation. But when they go this way, well, we identify. Well, I do the exact same thing with lateral, crossover, hip turn, jump, whatever. If it's outside my model and it's consistently outside it, then we then we interject with correctives. Yeah, I, I like how it's like you have the reactive as the gold standard too because that's what we're going to do in sport. It's not the – I think a lot of people would be like the closed is like the end of the session. Like did you run a you know 10-yard dash good or did you run this agility closed course and do these things? But – if you can't do it and react to something, then did you really learn anything that day? Like I, I think that's a good way of, of putting it. Like unless you can take it and put it into your sport, then what did yeah. we do today? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, the combine's a perfect example, right? How many guys are unbelievable in the combine, but then didn't perform really well? You know, when it when it was actually live football, they didn't perform as well as, and their tape showed that in college, but. Everybody was so enamored with their test scores because they had great training on that closed. It's kind of like learning a dance. You can get really good at it, but it doesn't mean you can do it under pressure with variability added to it. So that's, you know, that's always been kind of my philosophy with that. So, yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I, I think the combine is cool. It's like the, all the strength coaches get to put their track and field hats on for a little bit. And that's always, you know, so much fun <laughs> to get your 40. I mean, that's pure, you know, get your 40 is good. Vertical is good. But yeah, at the end of the day, if it doesn't work in reactive play, then you're just going to get tackled in the backfield and yeah, it doesn't right. matter. So uh, I like to, uh, and this is, you know, it's funny. I just, so I just had Dan John on last week and he was talking about, he's got a, um, I was reading his book called a contrarian approach to discus throw. And he was talking about how he would use uh, tires and cones to try to create the feeling of pulling the discus rather than just sit coaching it. And you had mentioned it right there using the medicine ball and, and not just, uh, and, and sensory stuff, and I like that. Not just the idea of saying, "Okay, do this." Okay, now go. Like using things to create the feeling of it. Um, I like just seeing those parallels and how you're doing that. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of cool to do that too. That's fun. That's the fun part of coaching is figuring it out. 
yeah, let's see definitely be creative and, and there's it, so many more ways I feel like to come up with something that cre- can create a sensation in an athlete to allow them rather than there's only so many cues you can give an athlete uh, yeah, just straight up. you're right. Yep. All right, Lee, uh, next one. So you ta- uh, let's talk about games quickly. Uh, you uh, Last episode, you mentioned how important games were in the development of multidirectional speed. Um, but are there any particular games that are your favorite? Like if you had three games that you use with athletes to develop their, their speed, uh, what what are some things you like to do? Yeah, there's a, 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 it, it's, a it's a drill, but it's, it's based on competition and it's called a cone stack uh, drill. Um, and it's, it's a, a game of competition. What we'll do is we'll set up, so again, I'll use you and I, we're doing a training session. You have a station, I have a station, and the station has one stack of cones where we start. Five yards away, there's three cones right next to each other, okay? And they're laying facing us, okay? So they're not, they're not stacked facing away from us, they're parallel to us. So on command, we have to run, pick up one cone, come back, stack it, go get the next one, stack it, get the third one, stack it, and I gotta beat you, or I gotta, if we go individually, I gotta beat your time. But if we go next to each other, then I just gotta finish the race before you. That, what that does, is it really elicits that reactive competitive spirit. So I get tremendous effort in pushing and it usually cleans up technique really well. I get to see the opening up of the hips, that directional step concept or that lateral run. I get to see deceleration mechanics and I get to see how they strategize themselves through this drill, which hand they pick up and put down and then I can help them from there. It's very, very competitive. It's one of my favorite exercises and I've actually used it as a test for my athletes as an evaluation. So it's kind of, that's a lot of fun. Another one I like to do is we'll put, um, we'll put, uh, have a line. Okay. So let's say a baseline on a basketball court or a tennis court or whatever. And I'm the goalie. Okay. I'm the protector of my space behind me. And then I'll have a couple cones outside of me, maybe anywhere from three to five yards on either side of me, probably not five unless I'm dealing with really higher level athletes that are fast. The other athlete starts back. They have to be at least 10 feet off me and I have markers for them. That athlete has to try to run and run over that cone or the other cone. My job is to try to tag them. The only thing that's tough for me is I can't cross the line. All right, so imagine a, uh, a goalie being inside the net. They can't come outside the net. But I can get to the posts, and I have to tag that athlete before they get there. Really, really good reactive drill for the person trying to not get tagged. And then the goalie gets that lateral explosiveness. So that's another one I like. And then always my favorites are when I go um, like partner next to each other. They have to run five yards and they have to go around a cone, and then they have to come back to me. It seems like a simple drill, but to manage their feet and to watch them, how they manipulate, it's kind of like the the L drill in the combine type of thing. They go around it. Now, what I'll do after they get used to you know, how they want to do it, I'll stand at the other end, and I'll either point inside or outside, and that tells them, which way they either circle outside it or they circle inside it to get around it. That makes it very reactive, and I get to see their cutting ability. So simple drills like that, and of course there's a lot of other regular tag games, but those are some of my favorite ones to do because I can evaluate them off those. Yeah, the simple ones too I think are definitely the best because there's so many like little nuances you can draw. Like what you just said, you're standing at the end and you're you're telling them at the last second which way around the cone they're going to go. and. And I think, yeah, I, I love it. And then so for that, um, for the partner drill where they're going around the cone, do they each have a cone they're going around or they are, try, are they trying to get her? Okay, I was like, if they're trying to go on the they same each. cone, that could end a little ugly for some. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's if I'm mad at them. Then I say, all right, now you guys just got to, it's a blood war. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, see, I can see some athletes really getting into that, but oh, I can yeah. see a lot of uh, potential downsides as well. Yeah, see, yeah, I don't think the parents like. They're, yeah. they're not real happy with those. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that would be in the middle of the session when they're off, you know, off getting coffee. Or something. Uh, yeah. All right, last question for you, Lee, because I had um, I had uh, early specialization here as my last question, but uh, so we already covered that a little bit. So yeah. let's go to 
uh, you had mentioned to the frontal and transverse planes. Uh, so is there any things, is there any extra training that you might put in for athletes who exhibit weakness in those planes or anything you might do in the weight room or any sort of drills or medicine ball work that you are using to develop, uh, those, that multiplanar quality? Oh yeah. A ton of it, ton of it. So we use, let's take a medicine ball. If I have an athlete that is exhibiting the inability to decelerate well with their upper body. So they're swaying with their shoulders or they're dipping or they're over-rotating, which is creating a less effective and efficient change of direction. So if I use a medicine ball, what I call a fake throw, where they jab really hard and violent and they have to stop it, can't rotate, can't slide in the frontal plane that creates an immediate stiffness the core turns on and what it does is it sends a reaction to the foot to be wider on the plant and it actually helps control their frontal plane when i move that same drill and i put it out further in front of them so if you look at me from the side my arms are out in front of me longer that we call that level three all the way out level two is halfway level one's all the way those create um transverse plane as well as frontal. So now I'm getting them to decelerate that mass. If I want to go and let their arms be free and I want to go after that change of direction and they're, they're not managing it really well, I'll take a band and typically it'll be around their waist, but I'll start to put it up to their ribs and then I'll go up to as high as their armpit. What that does is that immediately puts stress in the frontal plane so they have to be much much cleaner with their foot plant and stable with their core. Um, and then the last one I'll tell you about, and we do a lot of different ones, but I'll take, and I, I, my athletes do this almost every day, we take a band, okay, or a tubing that has um, handles on it, okay? And we take it, so I'm facing you, and the tubing is attached to my right side, it's attached to the wall. And I grab it with my hand as if I was going to turn and punch. So just like that, that medicine ball drill. But what we'll do is they'll take one medium level shuffle and then they'll turn and punch away. So they're actually punching and their back ends up facing the attachment point. So that trains immediate and quick stability of the frontal plane with the quick push off, okay, because they're pushing off with the lateral shuffle and the transverse plane. So what those do is they lend themselves very well to the change of direction, like a shuttle run, a five-yard shuffle change of direction, or any other kind of movement where there's a cut. And we find that it really helps the athlete clean up pretty quick. So those are, yeah, so I'm a big fan of training the frontal and transverse plane because I think those are the ones that make us sloppy. Yeah, I like how you you use dynamic, uh, you know, full full athletic movement to train that. One of the, my uh, kind of realizations recently is like athletes often aren't as I guess quote unquote weak as we think they are because I've had athletes who have terrible mechanics and I'm like, oh, this have bad core strength. They'll just get older and get stronger and they'll be okay. But then yeah. it's like I figure something out that puts them in the right position, like you said, connecting the foot with the hand and the upper body. And all of a sudden, like, whoa, you aren't quite as weak as I thought you were. Like, wow, you know, the human body is yeah. amazing. It can. And, and, um, and I, I've definitely changed my paradigm. I like how what you said uh, kind of fits, fits along with that and being able to allow athletes to, to connect, to have that sensory information to connect their body and do things they probably didn't think they could do before. Yeah, no, exactly. Let them feel it. Their foot tells the body what should be happening. When the foot touches the ground, if it's too wide, too narrow, just right, it sends the, sin the signal and the rest of the body adjusts based on that. So if we're doing these core exercises, we got to do some things on the ground. You know, we might have to do the dead bugs and these things just to build uh, a realization of where the body should be positioned. But I'm quickly going to get them up. And real matter of fact, I'll start them up first and I'll put them down if they have to go down. But otherwise, I keep them up because the foot tells the core what to do or the arm action tells the core what to do. So I'm real big on letting the body tell the core, well, this is what I need from you to execute this. Uh, great stuff, Lee. Uh, yeah. Great. Well, that's uh, that's the end of the questions I have for you. But awesome show. Awesome right. talk. It was, it was really good sitting down and chatting with you this morning. I uh, got a lot of cool things to keep in my head here as I got my uh, my tennis guys in this afternoon. So or this yeah, early great. morning. Thank you.
Thanks for tuning in to another episode. As we get closer to that magic number 100, it's hard to believe I've sat down 100 times to do all these. I mean, I, I love podcasting, and this series has definitely turned into something that's really gone beyond what my imagination would have had it when we first started. So it's just great to have so many unbelievable experts, masters of their craft, and I'm blessed to be the host for it all. So we'll see you all next week. Uh, if you like the show, please don't hesitate. Leave us a rating review, iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. Uh, drop us five stars. We'll totally appreciate that. And uh, also our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. They have an awesome blog, some of the best information out there, some of the best uh, in each class of sports monitoring, uh, timing gates, EMS, you name it, they got it. Free lap timing system, which is, that is my go-to. Check that out. We'll see you guys next week. Have a good one.